Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Three years ago, I covered an awful story about a young man who dropped his five-year-old daughter, Phoebe, off of the approach to the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. Now that man, John Johnchuk, is coming back to stand trial. We're going to be covering the story here, myself and two other reporters, Josh Solomon and Zach Sampson. We're going to be following along in the courtroom, and we'll bring you blow-by-blow coverage both online and in the print paper. The jury's going to have to decide, was John Johnchuk evil, or is he insane? Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Amy Hollyfield, and I'm the senior deputy editor for news at the Times, and guest hosting today. We're talking about the murder trial of John Johnchuk. He was the man who dropped his five-year-old daughter, Phoebe, off a bridge in 2015. Lane wrote a story about how many people failed to protect this girl. You can find it by Googling the long fall of Phoebe Johnchuk. And of course, we'll provide a link. For the trial coverage, the Times has committed three reporters, a photographer, and a photo editor on site. It is the most high-profile trial we've covered in quite a while. Joining us today on the podcast are reporters Josh Solomon and Zach Sampson, who coincidentally covered Phoebe's death that awful morning. So our topic today is insane or evil. That's pretty much the focus of this whole trial. It's the question jurors are wrestling with. As we record this, the trial is on day 18. We just finished day 18. Hopefully, by the time the podcast airs, there will be a verdict. So let's start with what this has been like for each of you following this case from a a month ago when it started to now. Blaine? Well, this is a whole new experience for me. I mean, I've been a reporter for 32 years, and I've covered a zillion trials, but I've never done anything like this. And I thank God every day that you gave me these two guys to work with because I don't know what I'm – I know how to report a story. I know how to write a story, but I have no idea how to cover something in live time, blogging it constantly, updating the website, tweeting and, and, and adding links. And I had was very lost in there. So I've kind of turned into sort of the stenographer and let these guys do their – their magic work with it because it's it's continuous you know I'm used to like finish a day think for a while write a story and this is a whole different experience you know the 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 live aspect of this has been really cool uh the fact that we're we're uh blogging as we go literally we're taking we're publishing our notes effectively um and I, that's been really cool it's been first it's it's, an, it's a good way to stay engaged uh because it can be easy to you know, sort of uh, start thinking about other things in the slow parts of the testimony, but we have to, you know, continue to to take notes and publish. Uh, we're, I feel like uh, we're sort of at a pace where we, we publish something every 10 minutes or so. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's a good way to sort of, frankly, pass the time in the dull parts. Um, but it's also, and it makes it easy when we write a story because we've, we've, you know, published our notes. We've sort of already written through our notes. They're already out there. They're already published. They're already um, vetted. Uh, you know, by the three of us, and we're all editing each other, uh, which is really cool. So it's it's been, it hasn't been, you know, I, I've I've covered trials before, uh, nothing like this though, and certainly not doing it this way. Zach, yeah, I think 
aside from the actual mechanics of how we're covering it, for each of us, we've been covering the story of Phoebe's death for years. And so there is an element to it that's kind of strange, I think, emotionally or professionally as well. Um, in some ways, this case has charted, I, I don't want to speak too much for Josh, but both of our careers at the Times almost entirely. This is one of the first really major stories that we were on the, the morning that Phoebe was dropped off a bridge. We were the first two reporters working on the story, and now, you know, there's going to probably be appeals in this case, but theoretically we're also working on the very end of it. Uh, so that's something that's been kind of running through my mind throughout it is is just how much has led us up to this moment and then uh, actually finally being at this moment, which is something I think, you know, we couldn't really conceptualize until we were actually here. And, and now as we're covering it, and especially with Lane there from all of the reporting that she did on the long fall, it often feels like we know as much, if not more, about this case than, you know, anyone in the courtroom, save for maybe the lawyers and... Maybe you know, not. Maybe not, right. You know, because there are definitely multiple points at which they're bringing up uh, pieces of evidence that, like, Lane, Lane reported that. You know, it's it's in her notes, which we've all reviewed before we, you know, prepared for this trial, and, and they're talking about it like they just got it. Like, they just got these records back from the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office, and it's it's like, well, we knew that, you know, and, and that's that's a weird experience to, to, especially as someone who's covered trials before as well, I think we all have. You're usually learning stuff as you go about the details of the evidence, but in this case, it feels like we're waiting for things to come out that we already know. Well, a lot of these, you know, I interviewed people six months after it happened, mostly when I started my reporting. You guys did the day of it happened. But most of those lawyers and even the experts, they haven't even talked to anybody for three or four years. You know, so that's also interesting, like the length of time that's gone by before they did any of their interviews. So you mentioned the live blog. So every day you guys are contributing to a live blog that, that you're starting really early in the morning and and working through. How are you dividing that work? What's the communication like? Because you can't you're in the courtroom, you can't talk to each other. How is how is that working? Um so you know, we we sit together and I think I, we were talking about this a little bit and it's something that I've been thinking about especially over the past few days. It feels like to us we've essentially set up a satellite newsroom ad hoc for this story. And so to some extent, I think we in the courtroom, it's Josh, myself, and Lane who are sitting in one row on the benches, and then just a couple in front of us is Scott Keeler, the photographer who's working on the case. Um, we're kind of like our own little newsroom, and we're sort of functioning and developing our, our own systems of organization and publication on our own. And so what we've figured out that works the best for us is we all work in one Google Doc. And that's like a living notes page for us. And what that enables us to do is see as each other is typing. And so if we know a big moment is coming up in the trial, um, we'll, we'll divide the work ahead of time for that specific moment. So an example of that would be um, when Phoebe's autopsy pictures were shown. Claire McNeil was at that point reporting with us on it, um, filling in for Lane. And we divvied that up. Somebody watched the jury while that happened. Somebody watched the photos and listened to the testimony, and somebody watched John Chuck. But more often than not, we're just kind of learning each other's rhythms and paying attention to the Google Doc. You can see when somebody's taking notes, if they go to clean up their note, that you need to pick up and start actually recording what's being said. And then 
one person is running the blog. It's usually either Josh or I, and that person is going back through some of the testimony and as we're taking it down live, rewriting it, and then pulling it to the blog and actually publishing it while communicating with Scott to make sure we're getting photos. And and I, going into the trial, having three reporters there, I thought we would be searching for things to do. And I at this point, I couldn't imagine doing it without everybody there because we're all functioning depending on what we're looking at as editor, writer, and uh, also like the, the 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 editor who's directing the coverage, not just like rewriting things, but the person who's actually trying to figure out when we're going to publish, when to take this, when not to. It's it's really fluid, and we have to do it almost all non-verbally. And so there's like a lot of thumbs up, and there's a lot of like taps on the knee, um, and that kind of thing that's happening. Yeah. Well, there's also we're also researchers in a way. We've had Karen Baird pulled in every once in a while, but a lot of times something will come up, like they'll mention somebody was arrested, and then these guys will pull an arrest report, so we know what that is. Or somebody's, you know, how much money are they paying this expert witness? All of a sudden, they could pull up those funds off the court file. So there's there's side projects too. You know, it's not just like what's happening in front of us. It's sort of continuing to do research as other things come up. And these guys are kind of amazing about pulling in those documents while we're working on it. There's also uh, the since we're working in a Google Doc, we can all talk to each other. Uh, we can literally chat um, in the Google Doc, which is helpful, and it also like affords us the opportunity to make like you know side comments about whatever's happening or who's ever testifying or whatever you know. Uh, so we do get a little of the uh, comedic benefit in there too. Yeah, and log our questions, and right. then we have you know for the really wonky newsroom crowd, we have our own like dedicated newsroom Slack channel for this trial, which has been very helpful. For helpful for us too because we can constantly update and and you guys always respond to us in there and so we're not totally disconnected from the main newsroom even though this is the first time i've been in the newsroom in like four weeks so how do speaking of the newsroom what do you think about the planning tell us about the planning that went into this and do you how do you feel about it now a month later the conversations that were had before this trial started yeah i mean i thought the planning was remarkable um but there was a chance like a week before the trial that perhaps the trial wouldn't go there were some issues with john chuck's mental health and if he was going to be competent or not to stand trial and frankly i was almost hoping that he would be found incompetent because the first time we you know went through the motions of getting ready for the trial we planned uh, you know, and I thought we planned reasonably well, but then when the trial got pushed from September to, to March and we went through the motions of planning again, like, wow, we brought so many more people in. We had these great meetings where we had, we threw ideas at the wall. And frankly, our, our trial plan was born from like the second run of, you know, preparing for the trial. And I think we came up with some, uh, some decent ideas that we could have implemented if we had thought of them earlier. And I was hoping, I was almost hoping, frankly, that we, it would get pushed another six months so we could start working on the trial with these more really elaborate plans. Uh, because each time, it seems like each time we prepped for it, we got better at it. Oh, we're going to be really ready for the appeal. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what has surprised each of you most in court? Lane? I, I think for me, it's, it's how much the jurors don't get to hear. You know, we we know, like Zach said, we know so much more than most everybody in there. But then the jurors only get to hear a tenth of it. You know, like you can't use the word psychopath. That's just crazy to me. So they've spent, I don't know, hours arguing over, can they say psychosis or suffers from psychotic symptoms or just the rhetoric of it is so vetted, you know. And then a lot of the stuff, and anytime anything sort of, you know, 
halfway juicy comes up, somebody objects. And they, uh, we counted today. How many bench conferences did they have? And like 10 or 11. They, I mean, they spend so much more time huddled around the judge's dais whispering than they do actually putting on testimony. And they keep sending the jurors out, sending the jurors out, sending the jurors out. So it's, it's kind of surprising to me how much of this the jurors don't get to know. It is, that's interesting. It's like if... Uh... If the whole case is a whole slice of pizza, the jurors know this, know maybe like 5 or 10% of the case. I mean, so many witnesses that were in Lane's story, uh, the long fall that, that, that aren't being called, um, and the questions that aren't, aren't being asked. Um, I mean, like, they don't, there are whole elements of this, of this case of, of uh, John Chuck's, you know, life before the, the incident that the jurors are never going to hear about because the, the lawyers are curating their own individual narratives and whatever f- doesn't fit, they leave out intentionally. Uh, and it's super interesting to know that, like, I mean, uh, what was an example of that, um, that comment that they're not going to be allowed to hear? The, wait, there's a, yeah, there's a comment that a paralegal for John Chuck's custody lawyer um, heard him say on the phone, according to her notes and her recollection, the hours before he killed his daughter, um, and the exact text of it is is something along the lines of um, if I can't have her, then no one else can. About Phoebe, which is is a pretty important statement in this case because this is dealing with whether or not he pre like had premeditation for murdering his daughter, but also whether or not he was in touch with. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The reality, if he had the diff- knew the di- knew what he was doing and knew if it was right or wrong, which if you want to understand that more, Josh wrote a really good story on it. Um, but that statement is like gets to all of those issues. It's a super important statement to the point where the judge referred to it as a quote unquote killer statement while not letting it in. And the reason she decided not to let it in is she said that the prosecution essentially didn't follow the rules of evidence to notify the defense about it. So there's this, you know, small, it's not small, it's significant. It's, it's like the basis of our fair trial system. But, uh, you know, there's this legal technicality that's going to prevent the jurors from hearing arguably one of the most important statements in the case. And they're now going to decide this case, which we've already established is one of the, the biggest trials we've covered in Tampa Bay and in recent years without that statement that we and anybody who's reading the blog knows that's you know that's a a weird thing to really contemplate is it weird uh what how does it feel i said weird but maybe that's just how i'm imagining it being in the courtroom with john chuck what does he look at you do you do you have you had any is there what is that does it is it anything He, he doesn't really look at us he looks at scott sometimes the photographer um he looks mostly straight ahead down at his lap um sometimes at the witness but not always um he he seems real catatonic most of the time like i'm not sure exactly i think a lot of it's the drugs they're probably giving him but he hasn't really reacted much at all we've been watching closely and every time he like puts his head in his face or you know the lawyer pats his back we write that down because there's not a whole lot of reaction or response from him i mean even today they showed this video of um a 
psychiatrist interviewing him, and he starts to cry in the video when he's talking about Phoebe, but he just kind of watched it unflinchingly. Like, he like he didn't react at all because we were waiting for something, you know? He's had a couple of moments where he's been obviously affected by things in court. It, you know, when they showed the, f- the photos of the autopsy photos of Phoebe, it was a pretty uh, difficult thing to see, and he noticeably, you know, he was visibly crying during that and, and was shaken up. And uh, when his mother testified for the first time in court, uh, that also was a moment where you could see he was shaken up. Uh, I think it was the first time that he had seen her in, in you know, at least like three years. Um, it is weird. I, I don't know what it's like for you, Josh. It, it's a little bit weird for me to see him, I think. Uh, this thing that keeps playing in my head is, um, you know, so, so much of this coverage in this trial has happened without John Chuck's voice. Um, and when I say this coverage, I mean going back to the moment Phoebe was was killed right that morning um it's happened without john chick's voice and without his like presence outside of a still photo like a booking mug you know and the only other moment that we had really seen him for any length of time was a was about a 15 second walk out of the saint petersburg police station at like 6 a.m hours after he killed his daughter he was in this white painter suit looking thing and he was walked barefoot by a couple of police officers to a, a transport vehicle um, and so that it's like that 10 seconds and now this entire trial with this four, four year gap in between. And, you know, I remember watching that perp walk and he looked like a completely different person. You know, he's lost a ton of weight. Um, you know, he, he was in handcuffs then. he's not in court. He was in that white painter suit. He's in, uh, you know, he's in these, these dress slacks and these ties and these shirts that are provided to him by the public defenders. He doesn't have a belt. His pants are usually zip tied, you know, and, and the juxtaposition of those two images is something that it's like almost every day I think about that. And I don't have any really, you know, it's just, it's just a strange thing to like, to see the, the fluctuation. Well, and that, um, you, you know, some, the trial is happening because of him and around him, but so much of the trial doesn't involve, doesn't involve him. I mean, it, they're arguing about legalities of things, and, uh, and the lawyers are up at the bench with the judge, and he stays put. And so sometimes it feels like it's easy to forget that, that John Chuck is the focus of the whole thing. But at other times, you know, uh, sometimes he feels to me like almost a sympathetic figure. I mean, he's accused of doing this horrible thing, and I mean, frankly, we all know he did it. Uh, we're just trying to figure out why. Uh, but the judge addresses him as Mr. John Chuck. Um, he he was frankly uh, undeniably smug in, in all those videos that we saw of him afterward uh, in the Manatee County Jail, like in the hour you know the hours after he dropped Phoebe. Um, and now he he's he's well behaved and he's like very diminutive. Uh, and and I mean sometimes. You know, I, I know I'm conscious of what he's what he did and, and the consequences of it, but uh, sometimes he almost feels like um, uh, I almost feel bad for him sometimes. Um, and so sometimes he he like his presence is really heavily felt, uh, and sometimes I feel like he's forgotten. It's just an interesting thing sometimes. Well, and it's also been really um, I don't know noteworthy. I guess no one's come to court for him. Not one single person. You know, you think usually whatever the guys did, whatever the, the infraction is, somebody's going to be there for them or just to sit in court and make eye contact. Not one single person has been there for him, you know, throughout the whole course of this proceedings. Wow. <laughs> I, I will say, like, another thing is that um, we talk a lot about him, but one thing that feels like it hasn't been a big part of the trial at all is Phoebe, and that maybe is more, even even more remarkable is 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 we're talking about the action of her getting killed but but nobody is there for her either 
you know, usually in a case like this, somebody's not just there for the defendant, but there's somebody's there for the victim. And, you know, when when this case is boiling down to doctors, they're boiling down to experts. What what's really at focus here is John Chuck's mind. And so that testimony can sometimes get deep into a textbook and it feels at different points today was certainly one of those cases like we're galaxies away from Phoebe's death. And that's really the reason that we're all there. But, you know, there hasn't been a, a lot of, of that mentioned in court. There's nobody there for her. You know, it's not like there's a photo of Phoebe up in the corner of the courtroom at all times reminding people of why we're here. You know, the, the jurors in this case, I, I believe, have only seen Phoebe's image when she, you know, her body and her autopsy photos, which was gruesome, and one image that was shown of John Chuck holding her in a pool um, when she was a little a little kid. He was holding her in a pool, and that image is also kind of freaky because he's holding her above water, much like he was when he the moment before the, he dropped her. Wasn't there also one more photo of her when uh, Mama was testifying? A picture of her. Uh, yes. I can remember a picture. Yeah, there was one. I think you're right. There was one other held up at that point. You know what I mean? But the, these but you're jurors right. Are, it's it's pretty yeah. much absent. They don't yeah. know anything about her except for that she's the little girl that died. You know, because normally that would come up. Somebody would be talking about what a wonderful little girl she was, and and you know, but, I want right? someone to. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's that all the all the people who could talk about the the loss of Phoebe <clears throat> are also people who could talk about John, and so like it. It anyone, it, for example, Phoebe's mom, Michelle Kerr, could take the stand. But then, you know, she has a she had a what a, a seven year relationship with John Chuck, who, and, and all of a sudden now, you know, her feelings and and observations about John Chuck come into play. And so I think, I mean, it, both sides have probably made the decision that a lot of the people who could attest to to who Phoebe was uh, are perhaps damaging witnesses for for the sides, and so they don't bring them up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, and if, 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 if Phoebe were a random girl and John Chuck weren't her father, then, you know, undoubtedly there'd be people here for Phoebe. But uh, I think that the family dynamic and the dangers of having perhaps unreliable witnesses who, who would be there to talk about Phoebe, but who then would also open the door to talking about John Chuck, I, for that reason, I think just nobody's been called and, and nobody comes. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and everybody in her family has some kind of background of arrest, substance abuse, mental health abuse. So like Josh said, they're all kind of unreliable witnesses. But they're also people they probably don't want to put on the stand because they're totally impeachable. So which also kind of goes back to the idea of like, I know we got a lot of criticism lately over this title, The Long Fall of Phoebe John Chuck. But the the double entendre of that I think is still so powerful because she was the fourth generation of this really unfortunately messed up family. And it was like she was born into this world she really didn't have a chance you know it was a long it wasn't just since her birth it was her grandmother's birth was messed up her grandmother was molested and on drugs you know so it, I think the family absences is, is uh, probably really calculated on the part of, of both the defense and the prosecution they're like oh we don't want to bring that in so almost all their statements have been sort of hearsay from what they told expert witnesses you know so it's pretty unusual for us to cover a trial gavel to gavel I can't think of the last time we did it. You know, it's just not something we barely cover cover court cases. Is that have either of you any of you sat through a whole trial before? I sat it, through the the Reeves, the Curtis Reeves Stand Your Ground trial, uh, not trial hearing. Uh, it was a two week hearing, and Dan Sullivan and I did that. Um, that was uh, super, frankly, super fun. 
Uh, different experience, though. The, the technology was different. Our strategies were different. Uh, there were only two of us instead of three, which, which makes a difference. Uh, the legal issues were different, too. Um, but uh, I don't know. The one thing I learned, of course, everyone in, everyone in the Jancha courtroom knows, the one thing I learned about the Reeves trial is that I need to bring a pillow, so now I bring a pillow with me to court every day. Yeah, Josh sits on a pillow the entire time. Uh-huh. It's kind of weird. I, you know, <laughs> no, it's I've, not. I've, no, it's extremely weird. I've, that's why you brought it up. I've never, uh, I've never covered. I've never been in a trial gavel to gavel quite like this. But like some of the technical journalism things that we can kind of run through pretty quickly on this, and why I think part of what we're doing is valuable, and how we've approached updating the blog, is that we have we're live streaming it and so there's a group of people who probably are either at work or they're retirees who are continually checking in on our blog to follow it every day on the trial so like when we're deciding what to and not to blog it's it's a decision on 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 the fly but the way i've been thinking about it is like if i was at work following this what would i want in terms of updates so in some ways i think that we're providing even more updates than normal and that's like based on what we're thinking about our audience is how can we approach that person and give them like a, here you go. If you want to check this, you can check this. And so we're, that's, that's sort of a play by play that we're offering. Um, we've never done that before. It's very strange for us. We're publishing constantly and it's been super hard, but it's, it's kind of interesting. It's refreshing. We, like, I feel like we have a great command of this. And so when it's all said and done, we'll be able to look back at our blog and say, these are the moments that mattered. How many inches did we write today? We wrote like 421 inches today. It was more than 12,000 words. It, I, I just to, to wrap up, I think, with these, because they're saying it's really exciting to do it in the moment. It's really exciting to have these 20-something-year-old guys helping 50-something-year-old me figure out this new process and technology. But I've been telling them a lot, and I don't know if you guys feel like this. I, I miss the moments of reflection. I feel like there's not time to stop and think and go, what just happened? What does that mean? And and sort of synthesize things in my head so I can bring some more insider context to the readers. That hasn't been there yet, and hopefully we'll get to do that some for some weekenders. But it really is like you don't even have to stop time to breathe, much yeah. think, you know? Yeah, we we talked about that today. It's like the our transitions are like this is happening, you know, because you can't you can't really break it down. And the the thing that we try to do the best is like kick each blog post on something that's somewhat impactful, like a mini moment. But it's it's super hard to do. Okay, if you have a question for Lane or the guys, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.